Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. For more information about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, visit us at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. All right, let there be light. Uh, Grab your Bibles. We're in Daniel 4. If you don't know where that is, you're smart enough to know there's a table of contents, but also it's, it's a little bit past the middle part um, of the Bible. And um, before we do that, if you are a member here, uh, a covenant member of the Door Church, I want to invite you to a member meeting today at one o'clock right here in the sanctuary. Um, and I really want to say if you're a member here, I- I'm asking you to be here um, and just make it a priority. Uh, we want to discuss what's going on, just the vision for the church the practical applications for the campus, just what's going on. So there's, you know, nothing to be, no crazy news that's about to like hit. But um, we want to do this to communicate better because there's a lot of stuff that we do as staff and elders that we don't always communicate out as well. And so we want to be super open book with our members. Uh, This is a time also for your voice to be heard. So we want to hear from you. Um, We respond to that feedback. And so would would ask that you would be here at one o'clock today. Um, And then... Another announcement before we get into the word. Uh, some of you know Danny Ribeiro, and he's awesome. Some of you don't know him, but you feel his presence because ever since we planted this campus back in March of 2020, Danny has been serving faithfully on the AVL deck, and he is a servant of servants. Um, he's a man, he, he's really probably glad that he's not here because he hates any affirmation or praise. Um, I think there's a giant Danny. Yeah, I'm sorry, this thing is popping. Um, we're putting Danny before you, the congregation, uh, as a deacon candidate for the next couple of weeks. And so in Scripture, in Acts 6, deacons are implemented. So deacons are not elders. Elders are not deacons. Uh, Deacons are servants, and they are honored servants. And Danny has been faithfully serving um, and leading other servants on the AVL deck such that we would have a distraction-free and God-glorifying gathering. Uh, A lot of that beautiful music that he and Sean and all of the guys back there um, they, they do unseen work. And so we want to put him before you, um, and you can find the, the qualifications for deacons, 1 Timothy 3, um, not gossip, but if there is a disqualifying reason why Danny Ribeiro should not be a deacon of this church, uh, come to me directly, please, um, and let's talk about that. Um, and also just be praying for him. We're super excited about this, and um, he's an incredible dude, and he serves this church so well. So Uh, Let's pray, and then we will get into God's Word. Lord, thank you for Danny, and we pray as he's traveling that you give him safe travels, and um, we pray for your will to be done. Um, Jesus, you you say that you will build your church. The gates of hell will not stand against it, and you are constantly um, building us up as your body. We pray that your will would be done with regard to Danny. We pray that he would be installed, uh, that we could honor him and... um, serve alongside him. And and so we we just pray for this process. We trust you to lead us. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Daniel 4, and we've been in the book of Daniel for a little while. This sermon series is called um, Faithful Exile. And so this, this book of the Bible is about being in exile, being a person that is not in your home country, but you're in another land. You're in a foreign land. And so Daniel and his friends and actually all of God's people, the people of Judah, 
They've been conquered by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar, who I will affectionately refer to as King Neb because it's quicker. Um, They've been taken, and Daniel and his friends are these best and brightest, these influencers, and they're being indoctrinated into the culture of Babylon. And we've watched King Neb over the last few chapters. If you haven't been here, I wouldn't just really go back. It's a beautiful story. Read chapters one through three. He's on a bit of a spiritual journey. And he rises and falls, and he's got these false gods, these, um, these non-gods, and his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers. He's trying to get this spiritual wisdom, and they keep failing him. And then they keep seeing Daniel and the true God, Yahweh, who keeps coming through for his people over and over again. And so Neb is, he's kind of searching and trying to figure this out. He keeps having these haunting dreams. and He doesn't know what they mean, and so he's trying to get interpretations. And that's going to happen again today in chapter 4. And What we're going to see today, this is Neb's testimony. This is Neb's story. So it's a bit, he'll disclose the beginning, and then he's going to go back and, and, and share how he came to actually bow down to the living God. So verses 1 through 3, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is a shocking statement by King Neb, the guy who just threw people in a fiery furnace for not bowing down to this idol that he created. But he's, he's praising God, he's glorifying God, and this is the summary of the rest of the chapter. He's starting by saying, cards on the table, God be glorified. And if you look at this, there's, there's a few components of his testimony that really we should find in our testimonies, in our stories, if, if you're a believer. First thing is, it's a public broadcast. So every tongue, every tribe, every nation, so do all peoples, nations, and languages. Neb is saying, I want you all to hear about this God. It's a public broadcast. Number two, there's loving intent. He says, peace be multiplied to you. He's not telling his story from a sense of of grandiose self-glorification, but he really, he wants them to, to, to receive the peace of knowing who God is. He's saying, peace to you. There's a love that should come in a testimony. And then furthermore, he's telling what God has done. He, he, it seemed good to him to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Don't we overcomplicate testimonies sometimes? Like, oh man, I can't share that or whatever. You're just telling what God has done in you. That's what a testimony is. So he's, he's wanting to declare what God has done in him. So this is his story. He's glorifying God. He's talking about his kingdom, his dominion. And now he has a dream. So follow along with me. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. That should be a warning symbol. And prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. This is a constant theme in this book. He's bringing the wise men that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. He's playing the numbers game with the wise men. Like, just bring them all. Let's see if anybody's got insight. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Another common theme is his wise men are not wise at all. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. So Neb has renamed Daniel blasphemously after one of the Babylonian gods, and he calls him Belteshazzar. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, which is wrong in him is the spirit of the living God, not his lowercase g gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lie in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the whole earth, to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So King Neb has this dream, and the setting here is pride. So C.S. Lewis once said that pride is that, that sin that we all have, everyone in this room, that none of us sees. You don't by nature look in the mirror and go, man, you are arrogant, you are prideful. None of us sees it. And the more of it that you have, the more you loathe it when you see it in someone else. And so there's this pride problem. Neb is at ease in his palace. Everything is going fine to him. He's content in himself. He is self-assured. He's prospering. When it is all good, we are in danger of thinking that it's because of us. And so he's prosperous. I remember years ago when Barack Obama was president. And those of you that are politically charged, I don't care what you think about Barack Obama, just go with me here. And he said to a bunch of business owners, you didn't build that. And he was saying that you were afforded the opportunity to live in America and have the freedoms, and his point was a good one. You didn't build that. And everyone got so angry. They're like, I did build that. That's because of me. And so that's what Neb is doing. He's like, no, I built this. This is my kingdom. It's because of me. And there's this pride tree. And this tree, it, it is big. It is beautiful. It is helpful. It's a common grace tree. So even bad kings or arrogant kings can provide shade and shelter for people sometimes. God works through that to bless his people. And so this is not per se a bad tree, but it's a pride tree. So 
in comes, in verse 13, a messenger from heaven, a watcher. It says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from under its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. This is the, the, the sentence on King Neb. Just see this. Let his mind be changed from a man's. Let a beast's mind be given to him. Now let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree, by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So this, this watcher comes down from heaven. This messenger from God, this too is a theme in Daniel, where God communicates with his people. He is kind enough to condescend and to communicate with his people and even to warn his people. If, if God would not warn you, does he love you? No. But he loves you enough to warn you. He loves me enough to warn me. And so he's warning. In verse 14, there's this, this deal where it's like, chop it down, chop down the tree. This is a reckoning. Cut that thing down. You see, God is the one who provides shade and shelter and food. God is the one who has done all of this. And so this kingdom asserting itself will not stand. So chop it down. And then there's the sentence on the king. We're chopping the king down here. And so there's no shelter for him. Have you ever slept outside or camped and you got the dew all over you? It's a miserable experience. God is saying where once this guy provided shade and shelter for people, he's not going to have that for himself. Where this tree provided fruit, some kingdom goodness, some sustenance, this guy's going to be eating grass like an animal. There's not going to be shelter for him. He's going to lose his mind. He's going to be restless in his spirit. And so what this watcher is saying is not only are you not God, you need God. Maybe he's saying that to you now. We see why, why God's doing this. Verse 17, it says that he's doing this, that the, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. God does not choose kings because they're worthy. By the way, he doesn't save people because they're worthy. 
but he chooses in his generous delegation to give some kingdoms. And when those who have those kingdoms do not recognize his sovereignty, their kingdom will be chopped down eventually. And so Daniel interprets the dream in verse 19, follow along with me. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He's like, quit freaking out and just tell me what it says. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. There's some relationship that they have here. Daniel actually doesn't want this to be true for him. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven in your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass it over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of, of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There it is again. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." There's this part of the Bible when King David, I don't know if you know the, 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 the account, but he's betrayed um, the kingdom. He's slept with a woman who's not his wife, had her husband killed. And after this, this prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells this story, this tragic story in a parable that is literally what David had done. And David's mad and he's like, you should kill this guy. This guy deserves to die. And finally Nathan goes, it's you. And that's what Daniel's doing. He's saying this tree, this kingdom that's going to be chopped down, it's, it's you, King Neb. And he says it with a little bit of, of sadness in his voice because it does seem that they're beginning to build a relationship despite the fact that he's tried to kill him. So in verse 27, there's the offer of Repentance. It says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and stop being a person of iniquity and seek mercy. 
There's the offer of, of turning. And we'll see whether he turns. But breaking off of your sin and practicing righteousness, you might hear me saying, stop doing bad stuff. Stop cursing or drinking too much or looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't look at. And it's like, yes, absolutely. That's not the heart of sin. That's the symptoms of sin. That's the outworking of sin. Sin is a disposition that is oriented away from God and towards self. And so the fruit of sin is unrighteousness. That's just what it is. The fruit of righteousness is mercy and justice and peace. Look at the life of Christ. Perfectly righteous, not a blemish in him. Only seeking righteousness, the savior of the world. And so God is offering Neb the offer of restoration through repentance, through turning from sin. Let's see what happens. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine all of this coming upon you? At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is, this, is, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. There's an interrupting voice. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. So, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So what, what God says comes true. That's always the case. So some people, when you talk to them, they've got a track record maybe of being untrustworthy. You're like, eh, okay, maybe. You don't need to filter the word of God. What God says comes true. That's exactly what happens here. And, and in verse 29, we see that this offer of repentance has been rejected for a year. For 12 months, King Neb, he's swaggering on his roof of his palace. He's saying, my kingdom, and then this ridiculous verse 30, this is the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. He's like, I did this. You can just imagine this moment. And I love this interruption. There's an interruption of justice as he's swaggering and just bloviating on about his greatness. There's an interruption from heaven. And it's like, this is not going to go well for you. 
And so it happens, and it gets super weird, and he gets long hair, and his fingernails are real long, and he's eating grass. And what a nightmare for a king. Is this not worst-case scenario? He's driven from his palace, whereas he once had the pride of providing shelter for others. He has no shelter. He has no shade. He has lost his mind. He has gone from a king to an animal. But what if this is God's mercy? That is the question, isn't it? Some of you are going through a horrible time and maybe you're not a king that's been knocked off a throne, but my question to you, what if this is God's mercy? We see in verse 34 that it is in fact God's mercy. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. Neb is getting his mind back. And for the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He lifts his eyes to heaven. So instead of looking down, he finally looks up. He's finally low enough to see God. And when he gets his mind back, it's like when you wake up from something. Your immediate intention, it's interesting. Like what do you immediately gravitate to? He got his mind back and immediately praises God. It's his waking intent. Then he sings this song or this poem and he meditates on God's kingdom in answer to that part of that this is going to happen until you know that God is the one who rules. He's like, I know now. Not only do I know, but it's sweet to me. He's restored. God gives him back his kingdom. Says you can have this stuff back as long as you don't think you're God as long as you don't hold it so tightly. And so he gives him his stuff back. And then there's this verse 37 where the objective reality of God becomes subjective to King Neb, personal. No longer fact, but experience. He extols, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Why? All his works are right and his ways are just. This man's just been through a lot at the hand of God, and he says he's just and he's good. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He's like, people like me can be humbled. So this is a testimony. This is a story. And every Christ follower 
has a story, has a testimony, and you may not be a Christ follower in here. I invite you to have a testimony of salvation. But each of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Lord, you have a testimony, and you may be one of those people that doesn't like to tell it. Because you're like, well, I wasn't walking along a road and was blasted with light, and you know, like, you, you, don't, you don't think it's theatrical. You don't think it's made for television or for a movie, but every story of salvation is beautiful. We're so obsessed with miracles. We're so obsessed with seeing the fantastical. And yet, people who were dead now have life in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a miracle. And so am I. So you have a story, and every story has an arc to it, has a flow to it. There's a guy named Joseph Campbell, and he, he coined this thing called the hero's journey. He calls it the monomyth. He says every good story follows this path. And maybe they don't exactly fit, but he's pretty right on. There's a person That person has a call to adventure, to go from the known to the unknown. I would say that's even just living life. There's a challenge and a conflict. There's an issue. There's a crisis. In that crisis, there's this moment of abyss, of low. In that moment, he calls death and rebirth. From that, there's what he calls transformation. And strangely enough, he uses the word atonement. As he says, there's redemption for the sins of this person in this story. And then there's a return, a return home, return to the kingdom. You can see Neb's, all of this in Neb. You got Neb, he's ruling the kingdom. He's having these haunting dreams. There's a challenge, there's a conflict. He's got his abyss moment. He's crawling around like a bird with weird fingernails and long hair, and he's probably about to starve to death because humans can't eat grass and live. And then there's this restoration as he repents and sees God in this return. And so if, if I were to offer a crude summary of Mr. Campbell's idea, it's basically pride, humiliation, Salvation. Pride going from self-sufficiency, strolling on the roof of your palace, metaphorically maybe for some of us who don't have palaces, self-sufficiency to insufficiency, which is humiliation, to salvation. And so you may be here, and as I'm talking about pride, You may think, oh, thank goodness, he's not talking to me. I am. You are proud. And I'll share with you, I am proud. And as C.S. Lewis said, it is not something that you are currently aware of. I guarantee you that. Pride is sneaky. We think of, of, of a prideful person as like, I don't know if you're an MMA person, but like Conor McGregor swaggering in the ring like, or, or like some business magnate with a cigar laughing hysterically as he counts his money. That's, yes. 
The more dangerous form is the form that you have, which is sneaky pride. And so maybe you're one of those people who, who you're self-sufficient or you're seeking to be through your money, through your character, like, man, I'm good enough that people won't disrespect me anymore. Like, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. Maybe it's power or authority. You're self-sufficient. You're at ease. You're, you're strolling through life and you're, you're just okay. And you're prospering asleep. Or maybe you want to be. Or maybe you have a hero complex and you're like, I fix things. You want me to show up. I've got a cape and I will make it right. And so I am here to help without realizing that you are in dire need of help. This is a great occupational hazard for what I do for a living. I'm the one that, that can help. It's pride. Or there's this, this real sneaky one, self-loathing. You think that's humility. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'll never measure up. I don't measure up. People don't like me. You think that's humility. It's pride. Because if God says through Christ you are a son, a daughter, you are enough. And to say that you're not, to have this constant self-doubt is a sin. It's you believing your feelings over God's word. I repent of this sin. Not to make you think I'm humble, but to tell you I, I sin against God in this way. Maybe you're a revisionist history person. I talked to a person this week and I was just, hey man, how you doing? And I got a laundry list of how he'd been wronged multiple times. I guarantee you he didn't see it. Are you a revisionist history person? This person hurt me. That boss shouldn't have fired me. This happened, this happened, this happened. Are you looking back with a self-justified narrative? It's pride. Are you defensive? If someone offers you correction, maybe not even in the best way, are you immediately defensive? That's pride. So, every one of us has this disease. And let me tell you, you can't skip the abyss moment. The humiliation moment. This is an essential step. You see, no one strolls into the kingdom of God with swagger. Think the last time you went to a nice steakhouse, a nice restaurant. I don't know why you get your car washed. You put on nice clothes, and they've got a reservation, and they've got a table for you, and you feel pretty special. They're waiting on you. What would you like to order? I think a lot of us think the kingdom is like that. It's like, man, I prefer that steakhouse. It's more like, like arriving at a hospital when you're deadly ill is what the kingdom is like. As opposed to, here's your reservation, it's more of you crying out, God, help me. I've come to the end of myself. I can't do this. 
And so you may think it's morality that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. It's your pride. And this pride renders you dead. It is terminal. And it is the sin that gives birth to so many other sins. And there's a death sentence for it. But Jesus offers salvation. You see, Neb was driven from men. Jesus was driven from among men. Cast out of the city. Betrayed. He had no shelter, no protection, no safety in this moment. Where he was humiliated. Where he suffered. And his humiliation, his abyss moment is in your place for your salvation. You see, the true king does not swagger on the roof of his palace. He hangs on a cross for his people. He suffers for their pride. So Ephesians 2, just so you know, if you are a Christian, this is your story. And if you're not, this can be your story. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do you know that? Sin renders you dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Sin is demonic, it is satanic and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, recipients of wrath, deserving of judgment. This is the abyss moment, like the rest of mankind. But God... Who's the actor? God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the story of salvation. And you must come to the end of yourself. You must be humbled You will be humbled one way or another. Know that. The offer of humiliation and repentance and restoration through Christ is for you this morning. And so you aren't the hero of your story. You aren't the hero of history. Jesus is. And so the call for us on this side of the cross, people in the New Testament, when they're like, yes, Jesus What must I do to be saved? You repent of your sin. You trust in Christ to be your Savior and you are baptized. You go under the water. You demonstrate what he's done in you, signifying you are dead to sin and you come out, signifying you are alive to Christ and you share your testimony. 
And if you're like, well, I've already been baptized, well, I'm asking you, are you sharing your testimony? What story are you caught up in? Is it your story? Is it his story? His is the most beautiful of all. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful story it is to see your gospel. To see what you've done, what you're still doing, the people you've saved, those that in this room you're wooing to yourself right now, those in the future whose names you have have called and they don't even know it yet. Help us come to the end of ourselves. Help us get low enough to see you, Jesus. Help us to see you in all your beauty. You who say that you are gentle and lowly. A God who does not ask us to grovel to get to you, but a God who comes down to us and dies, the rightful king. Bless this word to our minds and our hearts that we might experience change. Amen.